Today, I'm delighted to introduce Peter Sigley, the CEO at Springfox, our Australian partner. Peter harmoniously blends evidence-based insights with hands-on corporate experiences and personal triumphs, shaping a journey filled with positivity, courage, and academic rigor, all while championing the ever-evolving topic of resilience. Peter, welcome to the Resilience Podcast. Thanks, Brad. It's great to be part of the conversation more broadly with all your other interviews. So definitely looking forward to it. Absolutely. For those who don't know you, can you share a little bit about your journey and the work that you do? Sure. So let me start with uh, who Spring Fox is. Spring Fox is the Australian arm of the Resilience Institute, and we used to be called that, the Resilience Institute in Australia, for many, many years. But what we have seen within our market, the word resilience nearly became a dirty word. People were tired of hearing about it. And as you know, in the work that we do, Brad, it's a broader conversation. So it's not only resilience, but resilience as a pathway to well-being, how that informs leadership, psychological safety, conversations around burnout, um, a whole range of things. And so it was a broader offering to a market that was already informed about what resilience was or thought they were informed about resilience. So we still work arm in arm with the Resilience Institute, uh, contributing to research, but very much working within our own client base on the ground as the rest of the territories do under the banner of the Resilience Institute so that we are customising programs to the specific needs of individuals, of teams, of organisations, having had experience at senior levels levels of leadership within organisations and that real lived experience within the environment that we're operating in. So that's sort of who Spring Fox is. The work we do goes across a number of sectors, so professional services, health, engineering, mining, education, banking and finance. So if you think of a corporate landscape in any country, we work with organisations around all those disciplines I just spoke to you about and very much in the frame of reference as you and I have worked together for many, many years, providing not only workshops face-to-face or virtual, but having that fully blended program. So whether that's one-on-one support through coaching, development, uh, or through our assessments and also supported by our digital platform, the uh, Resilience app, it is about what is that best fit for an organisation and a team. And sometimes that's just a keynote. Let's move them forward with a sense of inspiration to take further action or really embedding those concepts over a longer-term program. So that's what we do. How did I get here? That was the second part mm-hmm. of your question, wasn't that's it? it. <laughs> yes. So how did I get here? Really the journey for me began some 20 years ago when the founder for the Resilience Institute in Australia, Stuart Taylor, was working with Dr Sven Hansen, and I was certainly part and parcel of that conversation, not yet fully ingrained in the business, but certainly aware of what was going on, aware of the developments, how Stuart and Sven worked together to develop the resilient diagnostic and how they took a program to market. Of course, Sven started that, and uh, all credit to him on an amazing foresight into a very much needed offering to how organisations operate. I came into the business some 15 years ago now, I think, roughly, giving away my age there a little bit, and started with facilitation but moved into, for the Spring Fox arm, the IP 
review development. So my title was Chief Knowledge Officer. So looking at what is that extension for our customers, what is the depth of topic required, uh, what is it that they're going to benefit from, and largely for our clients it is marrying the knowledge, the research with the practical, and we really do pride ourselves on that practical application and drawing on a number of resources that form a body of evidence, not just one study, two studies, but also engaging in our own study, contributing to the global report uh, where we can, but also undertaking our own research. So things like our COVID study in 2020, uh, our current research study in conjunction with the federal government and the University of Melbourne, which for the broader organisation benefits everybody as we have a number of research studies going on globally. And that just continues to validate uh, our expertise in the space but also keeps us attuned to what the client, the customer is actually requiring at any stage, at any point in time, specifically in response to change and challenge with everything that's currently happening in the world at the moment. Never has there been a more important time as to be able to tolerate uncertainty and move forward with skill. Wonderful answer. I, I wish... <laughs> I wish long not at all. I wish I could articulate my story quite as well. Uh, thank you, Peter. So today we have a conversation planned about a mm -hmm. specific topic, something that I'm really interested in and I think will be of great interest to our audience. It is hypervigilance. Now, hypervigilance mm -hmm. is a factor within our resilience diagnostic development framework. And a lot of people get confused when they see that they've scored red in this factor called hypervigilance. Mm -hmm. So perhaps before we dive in, uh, what does hypervigilance actually mean? Great question. And I agree with you, Brad, uh, in terms of our own personal experience within uh, the context of where we work, where it's a conversation we have a lot and people are often using the terms worry, anxiety, rumination and hypervigilance interchangeably. But it is really important to actually differentiate what they are and how, whilst interrelated, what it actually means between the different spaces. So worry is really that first line of engagement in this space and that is a where we respond uh, to a temporary concern about a specific situation. So things like getting ready for, ready for a podcast and making sure you know the topic at hand, uh, doing a professional services exam, you know, um, around accreditation, worrying about your finances in a market that may see increase, increasing interest rates. Those types of things are what we would typically term as worry. And it's really important at this point that we acknowledge that it's normal it's a common emotion and that everybody experiences it. So where does that sit in our resilience model? Worry really impacts us cognitively, so at the level of disengagement where we've just hit that overload intensity and now I'm starting to pull back, mm -hmm. and also emotionally where we pull away, so in that level of withdrawal. So that's the worry. Anxiety builds on that and anxiety is really about that more intense or prolonged worry. So you can see in terms of intensity and how it increases, worry first, anxiety second. And anxiety can happen with or without an immediate threat or um, fear of something happening to us. So it really is that sense of unease that people sit with. Mm -hmm. Fear is an emotion that is there. We tend to be apprehensive as well. And that can persist over a period of time. 
So in terms of our resilience model, I think this is really helpful for clients who work with us, is understanding that sits more at that distressed level. Okay, so you're seeing that deepening concern over a period of time. Rumination is an interesting one because we start to move more away from the emotion and just sit more cognitively in the thinking. So this is where we start to dwell on negative past experiences and we associate them with feelings of sadness and regret, but it is a cognitive process. And so it's that rumination, agitation, you and I having a conversation, but I can't quite let go of a thought. You and I going to dinner or a group of friends or watching a movie and my thoughts are consumed by something I just can't let go. Mm -hmm. And in terms of our resilience model, that sits at that confusion level, again, that cognitive level of the downward spiral. And as you quite rightly said, hypervigilance is that hyper alertness, constantly scanning for threat. So in terms of how we experience that, increased heart rate, rapid breathing, and so this really does sit at that distress level towards the bottom of our spiral. So when we talk altitude, am I free falling? I'm towards the bottom of that. I'm certainly not flying high or in the asset side of the model. Okay, that's clear. What causes us to become hypervigilant? Now that we've introduced the concept and then defined worry, anxiety, and so forth, it's anxiety that's the most common cause, quite honestly. So that leads us feeling to, leading us to feel more anxious in situations and environments, probably without really realizing that uh, there's no need to be like that, but we're certainly scanning for threat. And so it's an, a buildup of, of that anxiety. Uh, second cause here is often trauma. So for someone who's suffering from uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, you can hear people's conversations, their experience, their lived experience of repeatedly scanning around looking for threat. You know, you often hear people say a car backfiring just really heightens that sense of where am I, what am I doing, am I safe type thing. And then, of course, you've got certain uh, psychological conditions like schizophrenia where hypervigilance can make uh, symptoms worse and there's a biodirectional impact there. Okay. And would you say that, for example, the more anxious I am, it directly leads to more hypervigilance? It seems like a natural, what I practice, I get pretty good at. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, in terms of cause and effect, we need to be careful because everybody's experience is different. And so it's not saying uh, if you have anxiety, you will automatically move into hypervigilance, but we can definitely see that pathway. Yeah. Worry, which is normal, leading to more anxiety, leading to that space of hypervigilance. So we can see that continuation. Um, but it's certainly something to be mindful of. If you're sitting with anxiety, generalized anxiety disorder, and you're sitting with that for a longer period of time, you just need to be aware of that risk profile around moving into a space of hypervigilance. And, uh, you know, a bit like best friends, hanging hands and walking together, anxiety and hypervigilance, we can see how that works. Makes sense. How does hypervigilance affect people? And what does it look like perhaps at home and at work? Great question. So it's probably best to work, work along our performance supply chain. So what we know in terms of when we're doing well, our body informs our emotions, our emotions informs our thinking, our thinking informs our action, our motivation. And so we tend to build on our skill here. But when we find ourselves collapsing or moving into that space of 
free falling, if we're talking altitude in terms of our model, what we know is that cognitively we'll fail, which impacts our emotions, which impacts our thinking, which leads to that space of collapse. So uh, hypervigilant can have a significant impact on people both at home and work. And so it's interesting to understand that cognitively we start there and start to move down. So at home, what might we, what might we see? Things like uh, sleep disturbances. So hypervigilance often interferes with our ability to turn off for the day, to unwind, to actually get really good quality sleep. So individuals might experience difficulty getting to sleep. The mind just doesn't shut down or staying asleep. And often nightmares can be associated with that. So that ends up with us being really fatigued. And then that can go on to further exacerbate our other aspects around stress. So we can certainly see um, bodily impacts. From a family dynamics perspective, you know, hypervigilance can create a space where people are in, say that the atmosphere is really tense within the relationship or within the household, that family members are changing the way that they're living to accommodate somebody who's hypervigilant. They feel like they're tiptoeing around their own home so that they're trying to avoid upsetting somebody. And so our relationships, our communication with each other becomes more difficult or strained and we become more distant emotionally. We just um, want to step away from that space. Um, probably the last one, and I've already sort of reflected on it and mentioned it, is that relationship strain. So when we're hypervigilant, it's really hard to stay relaxed and fully engaged in our relationships and we then struggle to trust other people and that has a compounding effect. That action of trust is really hard when you're constantly on guard and very hard to find intimacy in a relationship, particularly a romantic relationship, when that trust is compromised there. So a couple of really big effects for people at home. And in the work context? And in the work context, it's all the good stuff that we <laughs> really try to avoid, you know, de decreased productivity. So, you know, our concentration's not quite as good as what we want it to be, which is why we hit the disengaged space in the model. Our focus, we tend to get distracted quite easily. Our productivity overall drops, which means our motivation can drop. So when we're constantly scanning for threats, those distractions can make it really difficult to um, complete tasks that are done in a timely manner, that are done efficiently, that are done to the full brief of what's being asked. So that can then have longer term implications on things like promotions and job satisfaction. Hypervigilance can lead to difficulty around making decisions. So we struggle to think clearly. We don't have that sound basis to our judgments, you know, coming from the space of second-guessing our choices or being indecisive or overly cautious. So really what we're looking for is not so much uh, the worst-case scenario, that melancholy, pessimistic space, mm. but that realistic, optimistic space. Today's a challenge, tomorrow will be better. I can compartmentalise what's not going well but really focus on the things that are serving me well. So decision-making gets difficult. Uh, emotionally, those interpersonal difficulties as at home will happen at work. Um, we tend to draw away from social interactions. We don't feel like participating. Maybe there's increased conflict between certain team members. 
Um, we become hypersensitive, close to tears, close to anger, particularly if there's feedback that we're receiving, which we think is not constructive but uh, highly critical and more like a personal attack. So that means if I'm in that space, I'm probably less likely to be collaborative and teamwork then suffers and we know that knowledge transfer happens best with teams when they're face-to-face, so I may want to step out of that space. And physically, oh my gosh, huge topic here, Brad, stress and burnout, and we're hearing it globally, certainly a big topic of discussion in the work that we're doing. So constantly scanning for threats can result in chronic stress and burnout. So there's that significant mental and emotional energy being burnt that leaves people feeling exhausted, overwhelmed, and just emotionally drained over time. So Again, it's important that uh, it depends on the individual, the circumstances, how intense the symptoms are and what available supports there are. So, again, it's not a one-size-fits-all conversation, but I have tried to give you a breadth of what could possibly happen. Wonderful. And for people out there wondering, this experience of hypervigilance, it's not permanent. It is something that can happen to you based on a series of events. It can be short. Uh, maybe you've been struggling mm-hmm. at work over the course of a month or it could continue for weeks, months, years. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. So, again, you know, you're just really um, clarifying that concept of not one size fits all. So having that awareness is a really good place to state start so that you can call in to check some of the things that you may need to do to prevent it or recover from it. So uh, understanding that sitting with that over a period of time is very different to worry uh, and that anxiety can feed into that space. So when does it become to a point where it's dysfunctional and moving away from the normal uh, way that in which we operate in terms of having that Genuine concern, but able to work with that and move ourselves forward physically, emotionally, cognitively. Excellent. A quick question before we look at some practical strategies to help someone who might Mm -hmm. be experiencing hypervigilance. Would you say that waking up and checking email first thing in the morning could be symptomatic of hypervigilance? And I guess equally on the other side of the day, when I just can't stop looking because I'm potentially worried about threats in the environment, but maybe also hoping that something good will arrive. Yeah, absolutely. So it's very much in line with what we call headline stress disorder, and we spoke about it a lot during COVID. And particularly for our younger generation, that constant doomsday scrolling, uh, it's important that we know that headline stress disorder is not a clinical diagnosable condition under the DSM-5, but it is a phenomenon experienced by millions of people around the world, particularly in times of high levels of uncertainty, you know, a conflict within the Middle East, uncertainty around economic conditions, uh, tension in the Asia-Pacific, your own economic conditions within the countries and the states and the cities and towns and and farms that you live on, Um, that doomsday scrolling Mm -hmm. uh, certainly is symptomatic of hypervigilance. It's certainly part and parcel of it. Mm -hmm. So, We can feed that space by picking up the phone before we even say good morning to the person that might be lying beside us if we're in a romantic relationship or uh, recognising the day and setting the tone for our emotions, our thinking, our motivation as we step forward, but really starting to build into that space. What have I missed out on? What is happening? Oh, my gosh, is there something else wrong? 
definitely um, into that space that you've just spoken about. What are some strategies that you can recommend for someone who is experiencing hypervigilance? So there's quite a few that we can do for ourselves. I think the helpful thing to say here is really what we're trying to do is calm and nurture the amygdala. So for those people who are unfamiliar with that term, it is that part of that part of our brain that controls hypervigilance. So there's a number of strategies that we would talk to that talk about calming and nurturing the amygdala. One is certainly what we would term it under our stress mastery techniques. Note we're saying stress mastery, not stress management, very different sides of the coin in the conversation. But that does include adaptive coping techniques. So we really need to be aware and acknowledge that coping is okay. That's part of that continuum. There's an event, whether that's adversity, challenge or setback. So from the big to the very small, uh, our first response is to cope. And so having those adaptive coping techniques and not moving into something that is dysfunctional is going to be really helpful. So we would certainly talk about things like uh, breathing exercises, including deep breathing exercises, things like progressive muscle relaxation, and there's great YouTube clips that talk you through that practice. Mindfulness meditation, we have that within the Resilience app and uh, Dr. Sven Hansen presents that, which is absolutely wonderful. And then grounding practices that we take out of clinical practice. So when somebody is dealing with pain, often those practices we can bring into a space of uh, grounding and calming. Um, so there's lots of things that we do clinically that we bring into the practice as well. So these things that I'm talking about and the variety of this is to let people know there's things that you can be doing that is not always necessarily mindfulness meditation because people at times cringe with the very thought of it. I've tried it. I can't do it. I don't like it. It's not the only thing. What we're really trying to do as an overarching concept is to work on that body-mind connection. When we relax the body, we relax the mind, and then we reduce the intensity of our hypervigilant responses. So those stress mastery techniques, number one. Number two, time management and boundaries. So uh, start by prioritizing tasks and setting realistic goals so we're not feeling overwhelmed. And really one of the biggest boundaries is that transition between home and work and work and home. And when I talk to leaders, typically there are four things that they speak about in terms of fundamentally um, required for those people who are thriving. And is that that is that they're very clear on boundaries. When they're at home, they're at home. When they're at work, they're at work. Doesn't mean they don't work evenings, doesn't mean they don't work weekends, they do, but they're not having a partner sit waiting for a dinner whilst they're walking up and down the pavement outside waiting to take a call from a client. Um, they're very clear on the boundaries that they set and prioritising. And I have to say that degree of methodology applied to prioritising tasks is often missing, uh, particularly in our leadership cohorts. And again, not ex necessarily explained or expressed or used when communicating to staff. Uh, so that's number two. Number three, oh my gosh, Brad, this is a little pet hate of mine. And this is where people talk about self-care, but then don't do anything. Mm. So we have to move beyond uh, a lip service to something about self-care. So, you know, regular exercise, sufficient sleep, eating healthily, enjoying activities outside of work. That all goes to promoting not only a sense of well-being but alleviate stress as we come back into the moment and we find 
joy. And um, there's a new term in psychology that's been around for a little while now, but we certainly talk about finding glimmer moments and being fully appreciative of just that moment in time. Different to gratitude, topic for another podcast, but uh, all those self-care practices that allow us to be in the moment, know that at this moment we are enough and we have the skills and the capability to move forward, really helpful. Social support is another strategy here. So, you know, your normal support networks, trusted friends, family members, health professionals. And I would say here, please don't forget your community pharmacist. Uh, Five-year degree, medically qualified, are able to talk to you about not sleeping well, uh, how they can support you with anxiety, tell you it's time to see a GP. If you're in an organisation that has an employee assistance program, an EAP, certainly reaching out to those people as well. So. You're getting relationship support, emotional validation and support, practical assistance, and I can I say quite shamelessly, doing one of our programs is a great way <laughs> to invest in strategies here. Um, part of what we do talks to the last couple of spaces, and that's how do I cognitively reframe? So how do I catch a thought, check it, and if I need to, change reframe, such that I'm challenging those assumptions that contribute to hypervigilance. I replace the awfulizing, catastrophizing with something that's more balanced and realistic. And again, I've already spoken about professional help, but it has to be underlined here. Always seek professional help. If the symptoms are persisting, uh, if you're feeling as though they're impairing how you're functioning, you may need the help of something that's more tailored in terms of what you're specifically going through. Excellent. So many different ways people can start the journey and and that's what i love about our program it's not one size fits all it's kind of experiment be playful find what works for you for some people mindfulness or meditation might be the solution but for others yeah you, you can go to the other end of the spectrum which might be getting professional help just before we go ahead any thoughts on spending time in nature to help with hypervigilance Absolutely. So there's some great research studies out there. And again, it's something we definitely referenced during COVID. And one in particular is the impact of going for a walk and the difference between an urban environment and in nature. Uh, the benefits from the walk in nature are certainly outperformed in a clinical study and the supporting research around that than that in an urban environment. So nature is really, really important. And there's a lot of psychology in terms of being engaged with your pets so that uh, stewardship that we bring to nature is really important. And certainly as a entity, human race perspective, it's certainly a conversation that is lifting in terms of um, being conscious in the work that we do and the way that people choose to live. But engaging in nature certainly has many, many psychological benefits, including grounding, which is one of the very first strategies you spoke about in terms of our response to and prevention of the space of hypervigilance. Mm. Having just returned from South Africa, I went for some long walks in nature and in real wild nature. And there were moments of hypervigilance, but Important to, to reiterate, there were moments where you see a snake skin and there's mm -hmm. a wildebeest standing looking at you, <laughs> stomping its foot, or there's a, a hyena sniffing as it walks past your vehicle. 
And that mm -hmm. must have served some kind of evolutionary purpose. It's useful to be hypervigilant in those situations, for sure. But it was great to experience them in, in, in that context, rather than as a result of emails and meeting requests and picking up the phone first thing in the morning. Absolutely. So that survival mechanism, one would have said that you were foolhardy or um, irresponsible if you weren't aware and alert. Aware alert is different to aware and alarmed. <laughs> yes. So you were ready for response. Okay. So I would suggest to you uh, that hypervigilance in that framework. So we often talk about upright, not uptight, mm -hmm. a bit like very similar to aware but not alarmed. And so mm. I would say to you, the functioning, the um, good functioning of the way you responded to those examples you provided us would be what we would hope any um, responsible, alert, aware individual would be doing. But having your heart rate go up and, you know, um, palpitations, sweaty palms and hands because you're driving past your building and it's Sunday and you know you've got to go to work Monday, way, that way outside the scope of um, what is functional for you or um, finding a level of distress in the number of emails that you've got that is beyond a concern that the workload's high, and we'll talk about that in a moment when we talk um, the risks at work, to something that is actually a survival mechanism. So yes. uh, it's great that you raise that because they're very d different elements mm. to the same conversation. Excellent. And thinking back about the work context, what about mm -hmm. leaders? How can they support people in dealing with hypervigilance and creating rhythms and practices to, to support a more calm, connected workspace? So for leaders, I think the first place has to be understanding some of the things that can trigger hypervigilance. So where does that stem from? And for many of us, it stems from those psycho psychosocial risks, trying to say that quickly, psychosocial risks. Uh, here in Australia, that led, has led to um, changes within the legislation at a commonwealth and state level so that organisations will be held accountable for the psychosocial safety of their mm. staff. So that can include things such as lack of job clarity, where workload is either too high or too low, poor organisational support, social exclusion, bullying, harassment, Remote or isolated work, which is interesting now that we've moved into a hybrid way of working in many parts of the world. Um, violent or traumatic events. So if you were in a retail environment, for example, and there'd been a, a holdup or a threat of violence because you were being robbed, you can obviously imagine that, or a knock health and safety incident where someone has unfortunately been killed or severely injured. And so a lack of control for work and the way that people work and the methods of work all those things that contribute to psychosocial safety can be a trigger for hypervigilance. So having that awareness for leaders is where we need to start. Building on that, it's about fostering an environment that's supportive so that where there's a culture of open communication and psychological well-being is, again, at the forefront of the conversation. It's not a conversation that sits outside of how a business normally runs and nice to have a ticker box but very much part and parcel of how we work. So we're really creating an environment for staff to share some of their concerns and be able to express that and know it's a safe space for them to do so. 
education and awareness goes a long way. So that's the business that we're in, Brad. We educate, we give practical strategies, we support people, we give them that longer-term way to embed practices. So understanding what hypervigilance is, that's the whole purpose of this podcast, Uh, how it can impact well-being when we've gone through that. What are your common responses to stress or and know if we're in an organisation that they're not alone, they're not experiencing it um, by themselves. So often in the one-on-one conversations that we have with people and the workshops that we do, consistently we hear, I'm pleased I'm not the only one. It's not just me. And that's education and awareness is a great place to start. Obviously, if the triggers are present, you're going to have to adjust that work environment. So we want to minimise the risk of hypervigilance. So can we create a space that's more calming, um, more secure environment? And that may be being more flexible around our work arrangements, not necessarily more working at home and less in the office, but opportunities for breaks when they're needed, allowing staff to manage their symptoms effectively within the workplace um, because there is support that comes from being together, which can often be missed when we're on our own. And so that leads to really establishing clear boundaries and expectations. What is it I'm asking you to do? What does that look like? So removing any confusion or lack of goal clarity, bringing in the goalposts a little closer. So great to have the strategic view, but what do I need this week? What do I need you to do today? So what are the realistic guidelines? What are the deadlines that have to be met? What's your workload like already? So trying to avoid overwhelming staff members. For leaders, leading by example has to be there. So you have to be mindful of your own behavior, your own stress levels. Coming in, I'm so stressed, I can't do this, and being angry or irritated by engagements with others, not a great place to be. So Mm -hmm. you've got to practice your own self-care, how you approach your communication, have that balance between home and work, that supportive environment. Uh, A lot falls on a leader's shoulders. And again, lastly, Be the first to encourage professional help. So where you do have that employee assistance program, offer to pick up the phone, make the first appointment. I can't tell you how often that request is followed by yes, please. Because people think they'll come back and do it, but if you're not in a great space, it sort of drops off the radar. You can't quite get yourself there. But if someone takes the time and effort to listen to you and then to take that first action for you, in showing you that they support you can be huge Mm -hmm. in the way that people then move forward. So in summary for leaders, it's empathy, it's respect, it's uh, courage to have the conversation, it's a compassionate way of leading, it is with boundaries, uh, high levels of trust, uh, that really rich space of compassionate leadership is what we would say. Wonderful. Some amazing tips in there today, Peter. Any final thoughts before we we sign off? Final thoughts. It is never too late to engage in yourself. Um, I always try to live by a mantra, and I think when it comes to hypervigilance, this one for me works really well. Go gently, go well. How am I approaching my relationships? How am I approaching work? How am I approaching life generally? Am I moving gently through this world? And go well. 
in terms of setting myself that well-being KPI. What am I going to focus on this week? How can I minimize the anxiety and the worry that I'm having? Uh, get informed by that, uh, by the spaces. Not only uh, is the knowledge helpful, but then you can tap into the practical strategies. It's not do everything, do it all at once. Remember everything that we've spoken about. It really is in line with the way that you and I work, Brad. Pick one, two or three things. Give yourself a point of attention, a point of focus, and then put it to the side for a little while. Focus on something else. The next one, two or three things for another couple of weeks. Put that aside. Maybe circle back to the ones you did previously. See where you sit and fit. You don't want to become desensitized and disillusioned with the space. It is about being kind to yourself as well as being kind to each other. Uh, and when you set an expectation and a goal, I often talk particularly to leaders, about a bandwidth of success. Seven out of seven days a week, we'd love you to be there, but you know you haven't failed if you get there five out of seven days a week. And you know what? If you're really struggling and you get there four days or three days a week, there's still space to celebrate. We don't want you to be in a place of perfectionism, which can really drive hypervigilance, mm -hmm. and go, it's seven out of seven, I didn't get there, I'm going to stop, I've failed. Um, it, it is really pick yourself up and, and go again. Progress, not perfection. I love that so much. This has been a wonderful chat. And I look forward to continuing perhaps with gratitude in, in our next conversation. I think that'll be really valuable conversation. Thanks, Peter. It's been a pleasure Thanks having you well. on. Thank Every you so much. And I really do welcome the opportunity to do it again sometime. Excellent. Thank you all for joining another episode of the Resilience Podcast. To find out more about Peter and her team at Springfox, please do click on the links in the show notes, and we look forward to seeing you next time.